Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today we had another Q&A with Dr. Mike. Uh, Mike, I don't know if we've had like an update from you in a while, and it feels like a while since we've spoken. What, where are you with things? I know you had an active recovery with James like a month ago or something. Where are you? Mm-hmm. You're massing right now, right? I'm massing. I'm, I still can't grow hair on the top of my head, <laughs> so there's that update. Oh, don't rub it in, Steve. Look at Steve. <laughs> I don't. You don't want to see my receding. <laughs> well, you, know, you still have it. a receding. Mine has receded. <laughs> um, yeah, I am massing, and it's going very well. I'm uh, massing, and I would say the kind of one of the best ways possible, which is to say that my strength is slowly but steadily increasing. I'm never really surprised by my strength but i'm always pleasant like having workouts or like oh that's really good oh i did really well oh i beat my chip by two reps instead of by one or oh i could i put out five pounds instead of two and a half and that's just been like the last six like weeks of training have been like that and i think that's really like um for folks listening a cool take home is that that's where all those lifetime gains come from and that's where you get really big eventually is just by sandwiching together really good training sessions. I think a lot of people, like when I start massing every time I'm susceptible to all the same fallacies as everyone else. Every time I start massing, I'm going to be like, look, and it's going to be a revolution. I'm going to get jacked immediately. And I just didn't, you know, cause you know, you add maybe like, if you're just growing at an unbelievably fast pace, you add like half a pound of muscle a week. I mean, you can imagine that's 25 pounds of muscle a year or something, right? Half a pound of muscle a week. You physically can't tell after four weeks, like you look almost the same. I mean, at the end of the day, what does two pounds of muscle look like on your entire body when I weigh like 240? I mean, I could barely tell, right? So right now I'm like looking a little bigger, but my strength is going up like linearly when I'm having really good workouts. And that I have to remind myself is the essence of hyperproductive massing uh, is like, that's it. Uh, and it's, it's funny enough, there's some pharmaceutical elements in it too. So for example, higher dose growth hormone, which I'm uh, currently experimenting with in an alternate timeline, it's just getting boring. As when I'm on UK podcast, just a bit to drug use outright, <laughs> it's legal here, right? So, you know, like higher dose uh, growth hormone is, it's about higher dose for me, by the way, is like a, a pathetic dose <laughs> for most people my size, but uh, my little kitty doses. Uh, so that seems to add a lot of muscle. But the thing people have known about growth hormone or muscular addition for a long time is that it takes time. It takes months and longer to really see results, but the results are coming and coming and coming and coming. Um, whereas a lot of people will sometimes when they do the pharmaceutical stuff and they want to get big, they'll use the faster drugs and that gets them into trouble, not only with their health, but with their um injury rates because they can blow you up and make you stronger so fast that you get hurt. Uh, so a lot of times people will take a bunch of orals like D-ball and Anadrol right after a show and they'll just gain like 40 pounds right away and their lifts skyrocket, but it ends up the fluid recompartmentalization makes everything weird. And of course you're way stronger because of the, the sort of the, the neurological effect there. And all of a sudden, boom, your, your pec tweaks and you're like, fuck. So I have to keep reminding myself like the path that I'm on with both training and diet and and pharmacology is like a slow and steady accumulating path. And that's very much like what naturals experience and what I experienced when I was natural. And I think that's like a good reminder, like, oh yeah, like this is how this happens. Cause like every couple of weeks I've been like, Ooh, when am I going to be super jacked? And like, that's never going to happen a year later. I'm going to be like, oh my God, these pictures of me from a year ago, I'm tiny, but you know what I mean? That that's just how it goes. Yeah. I think it's, 
it's funny that the picture thing i look back and i'm look at like i don't know stage photos from 2017 i'm like oh i could share these like shredded shredded shots over on instagram like just look skinny and i don't like these show photos anymore <laughs> like i don't want to share these yeah and if you share them other people are like oh my god steve you look amazing and you're like looked <laughs> past tense please see the date i don't look like this right now for the love of god i'm so much better now it's it's, it's yeah. good no i mean your physique has taken a complete like and the thing is your physique has done the exact same thing i just described there was never a time when you were like oh my god steve you're jack now it's just slowly but surely you're more jack more jack more jack and we kind of got used to it and now we look at you and you're like whoa dude you're fucking huge and then we look at old pictures and, oh my god i can't believe steve ever used to look like this so there was like a distinct time when psychologically i related to you in my head as like, oh, Steve, the small natty guy who is small. And now I relate to you in my head just automatically over time. I was like, Steve, it's fucking jacked. <laughs> like, I remember one time, the last London seminar we had, uh, I saw you in person. It had been like a year since I'd seen, seen you. And I was just like taken. I was like, whoa, what the fuck? I think I remember telling you, I was like, dude, what the fuck? And you're like, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I'm like, I think you're huge. And you're like, no, I don't know. Really? And I'm like, yes. And you were hack squatting like a fucking trillion pounds. And I was like, dude, this is a new Steve. But that shit takes time. And uh, I think we all like, like, like I, you know, me, you and I, like we mentor other people in this and we still struggle with the week to week lack of change. Like, yeah. I don't know, like about the same week to week. And sometimes it can be kind of, especially on Instagram, you see bodybuilders posting pictures and they're like post-show rebound, gain 40 pounds. Like, fuck, why did I gain 40 pounds? And like, wait a minute, that, that's all water anyway. That doesn't work like that. So it's just good to keep in perspective, I think. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I always say it's kind of interesting. Like people talk about genetics and all of this. And I'm just like, it's interesting how you can look after like how good genetics can look after 10 years of like just dedicated putting in the shift because like most people are going to look pretty decent after 10 years of really giving it a good go. Most people don't yeah. do that. So no, no, they, after two or three years, they quit. After two years of lifting, I weighed 145 pounds. So that would have been fun to stop at. What were you after two years of lifting? Oh God, I don't even know. I was like maybe 160, something like that. But yeah, but like at five, five ten. You, five ten, yeah. Because yeah. I was like five three. So yeah, r like roughly, yeah. So five ten at 160 is like, oh, like this guy maybe goes to the gym, right? And now Just you're five ten and like yeah, two hundred <laughs> or something, and that's a fucking jack dude. And it's just, yeah, people just don't, man. I know this is an old trope and people are probably sick of hearing it, but time really is the way, uh, you know, if I see, and I've talked about this before, like what you can learn from jacked people, like when people see a jack guy in the gym doing an exercise, they automatically assume like that man probably really knows how that exercise works. That, you and I both know that's not true. He could be butchering it. What we do know is that person has decent genetics and he's been very likely training and dieting to eat, like to gain muscle for years. Like nobody just starts out at 230 pounds of abs. It's un unbelievably rare. So that's really the kicker. And people discount the time thing is especially a lot of times, uh, you know, when you and I started lifting, we probably didn't have a whole lot of social media. It wasn't as prevalent. I think nowadays people start lifting, they can immediately see all the best people update their physiques all the time. And it's, man, I, I can imagine what that feels like. You weigh 120 pounds and everyone else weighs 260. And you're like, oh, like this is insurmountable. I remember when I was reading my first Flex magazines, I was like uh, 200 pounds or 180 pounds. And I was looking at these guys in, in the, the magazines and I was like, I no one 
human can ever look like this. It would, it would never occur to me that I could look like that. I, didn't, I wasn't even dreaming. I was just, it's like looking, watching like Superman, like cartoons and being like, I'll be able to jump over a building one day. Like that was the equivalent to me. And uh, I, at some point when I was prepping for a show, I was like getting pretty lean. I looked in the mirror and I, I had like a flex magazine around and I looked through some of like the amateur competitor sections and I was like, oh my God, I look like these guys. What the fuck? How did that happen? And it just, it, 10 years, that's what it took. It took fucking yeah. 10 years. I love that because I had literally the same where I would look at physiques like Matt Ogus, for example, he was the guy who I like, he was my first social media like guy I followed closely, mm -hmm. which is a good person to start following, to be honest. No, you were lucky. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very lucky. So he shred. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was following him and I was like, man, I'll never look like that. And then they became, I don't know how many years ago, like a couple of years ago, started looking at people like even Matt and I look at him and I'm like, Matt's in phenomenal shape, but I'm not like... So out of it, like if we both stood on stage, I'm not like he would absolutely blow me out the water. No doubt he'd probably beat me, but um, or let's see. Um, but I mean, now I'm kind of standing up there, and I think it it's a good reminder. I blur on about this all the time on my like Instagram. It's like one of my topics that I post about almost every other post. So uh, it's good that people, people can hear need it to again. hear it, man. People need to hear it. It's, it's, it's uh, the daily journey of going to the gym and you feel like you have good results and then some more jack guy shows up and he's been lifting even less time than you or he doesn't know as much and you it's easy to be like what the fuck am i even doing here like i weigh 170 pounds i've been training for five years this, i just met a guy who trained two years and he weighs 190 why am i even bothering and it's like that guy might quit or start a drug habit or he might become great but you might also become uh, unbelievably different to what you used to be and and that's really what it's all about and and there's no you know, if you, man, I, every now and again, I get an Instagram message, just people like, man, like I only gained 10 pounds of muscle last year. What am I doing wrong? I'm like, oh my fuck, <laughs> you just keep doing that. You'll be enormous eventually. Yeah. So it's it's easy to get caught up in like the, I wish I was Jack now mindset. We all do uh, every now and again, but it's good to remember that, you know, over time, things really do change. I'm very excited for like maybe five years in the future from now where there are literally people who message me and they'll be like, the first resource I got was your podcast or like the RP diet book and the now the hypertrophy book. And there's going to be younger guys starting with this information and they're going to be like absurd. I watch you probably, well, you do know Jacob Wren, going to give him a mm -hmm. shout out. You're, he's an RP mm -hmm. intern and you see his like gym footage and like he's early in his lifting career. You watch him train. Yeah. He's going to be impressive in a number of years time because I mean, he's, he's doing everything right. Steadily. Yeah. And yeah. My first met him at one at the revive stronger, uh, a conference um he was like a little kid like literally a little kid and i was like what the fuck is this kid like 16 it turns out he was uh and now he's like a fucking grown man I was like, what the fuck like he's he's really making some strides fuck nowadays man i'll keep the names out of it i don't know if, i'm sure they'll find it but like i have a few ifb pros messaging me being like dude I'm, i watch all your youtube videos i love like getting the insight and i'm like what bizarre world universe are we living in and like yes because it's uh it's just great that people are on their journey and taking it slow and steady and trying to learn. And I guess that's what you and I are all about anyway. It's yeah. like, uh, forget all the bullshit and just do your best. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, I'm glad we started with this. Although I do have one more selfish question. Uh, and it's related. Well, it's the, um, I'm, hopefully you've seen the study where it was basically comparing whole eggs versus just egg whites. And it was found whole eggs were to provide a better hypertrophic response like a, mm. i think it was within a post-workout scenario have you seen the study or, or do you know the one i'm talking about mike i'm familiar with a study exactly like that from like man six or seven years ago yeah i don't know if it was there was an updated one or if people are still talking about the same one 
Um, Are you familiar with a very similar study between whole milk and skim milk where whole milk yeah. was shown to be more anabolic post-workout? The problem with that study was not equated for calories. I don't know if the egg study was equated for calories. Okay. Um, to be completely honest, Steve, I never look at those studies or hardly ever read the single studies themselves because I look at nutrition on principles basis. So, um, uh, you know, the amount of fats in whole eggs post-workout for a variety of very convincing reasons from the literature that have 10, 15 studies each, is probably not a good idea. So I just rule them out wholesale altogether before even trying. And uh, I, I would, you know, I guess I could be interested in looking at that whole eggs versus egg white study. But the real big question for me is, was it calorie equated? Uh, I know the whole milk versus skim milk study that I remember was not calorie equated. Of course, if you get a huge bolus of calories, more of the protein is going to be used towards anabolism because less of it gets burned up. I don't know if that was the case with whole eggs versus uh, uh, egg whites, but, um, and also, you know, by what mechanism is that really occurring uh, is the next important question, because what we really want to know is mechanisms. Like, I, I don't really give a shit that whole eggs are more anabolic than egg whites in a single study. What I care about is what are we going to take away from them? Is it the cholesterol? Is it the added fats? Are the fats somehow anabolic or is it just a displacement effect of calories? You probably can't learn that from a single study. So, but we have a ton of studies on all kinds of different protein sources and carb sources and post-workout this and that. And consistently high fat meals post-workout have not resulted in as much anabolism as high protein and high carb meals. So to me, that's a bigger theoretical problem. That study has to jump over uh, versus being like, well, I should eat. Like, uh, the last thing I'd want somebody to do from a study like that is to go out to eat afterwards and order whole eggs after the workout, along with all the other high glycemic carbs or whatever, and being like, whole eggs are shown to be more anabolic. Like, yes, in one study, they may not be replicated for a reason that you could obviate entirely, but just eating more calories from carbs and get the best of all worlds, you know, because that's the thing about properly uh, understanding science. You don't know what the lurking variables are, and you, you don't know that it's the whole eggs themselves. And so, for example, like you could ask, uh, someone like, hey, you could have 100 people take a bicycle ride uh, or a car ride to a certain location and then evaluate their pleasure response afterwards. Like, hey, how was your, how was your uh, journey here? Was it good, bad, neutral? And you could get a result that says, okay, most people actually enjoy riding in the car more than they enjoy riding on the bike. And, and you could literally just take that finding from that one study and anytime someone's riding a bike, you could be like, dude, why don't you just drive in a car? And they're like, well, I like riding my bike. Like, yeah, haven't you shown that like most people don't actually like riding bikes? And it turns out you look back at that study and it was done in like, you know, uh, in North Scotland in January. And it turns out sitting on a fucking bicycle when it's fucking zero degrees sucks. And it's not the car ride. It's the fact that cars all have heat nowadays. And like, if you replicate that study where you put really warm clothes on someone, or you just replicate it in the summer and beautiful rolling hills of Scotland, and all of a sudden the people that rode the bike to work are like ecstatic about their commute to work. And the people in the car are like, nah, it was fine. And then now next study comes out and it's like, bike's actually better. Like, Steve, there's going to be a study in like two years. It's like, egg white's better than whole eggs for anabolism. And people would be like, fuck. So you got to look at it from a principles perspective and see, okay, what is the study telling us slash what is it not telling us? What is it, what variable? isn't it accounting for and it turns out that's why single studies are so underpowered is because we don't know what kind of lurking variables and co-variables that were there uh, we don't know what it is that's actually doing what it's doing we need multiple other studies and we already have those that show us that high protein low fat high carbohydrate is probably our best bet for post-workout anything that violates that may on occasion come out as superior for a bunch of different reasons but probably not a dependable reason that you can sort of take home um i had uh, there's similar other studies um talk about this time blue in my face people show me like, 
one study of two different kinds of hamstring curls. Uh, like one guy was like, uh, I was doing lying leg curls. And one guy's like, why don't you do seated? It's superior. I'm like, yeah. what do you mean it's superior? He's like, here's the study that showed it was superior. I was like, sweet. I'm actually not an 18 year old Swedish undergraduate from Karolinska <laughs> Institute. So it doesn't apply to me. But also it was like, do you understand the principal variation that after a certain amount of time, you're just going to get super stale on seated leg curls, no matter how much better they are. And lying leg curls, although biomechanically, yes, slightly inferior because they don't elicit as much of a stretch response. Uh, they are now a better alternative. So, but to so this person, this was all news to him. He was just reading studies verbatim and going like, oh yeah, this is good. This is bad. Like that's not yeah. how you read research, which is again, why I recommend that most people don't read primary research. Uh, you should be taking in the uh, insight of experts through YouTube videos and articles. If you really like YouTube videos and articles, you want to learn more, start reading books and then you know, start reading the literature reviews, book sites, just all the literature at the same time. And then once you're really good at all that, you really want some super great insight on upcoming topics. Then you read study by study by study. That only happens at the end of the journey, not at the beginning. I'll have, I'll have people with no formal background send me individual studies and be like, what do you think of this new study? I'm like, I didn't think about new studies unless they're in the context of the body of literature taken as a whole, you know, um, fuck man, I'll tell you this, this is just really bad, but like, you know, a lot of the P ratio stuff and, and people's way over exaggerations of it, which I was probably a part of myself, uh, came from like one study, uh, of like not a very convincing population. And that Eric Trexler has recently like torn a new asshole. Uh, you know, I was on your fucking podcast talking about that. And it was like that, that all started from like one fucking study on like some anorexic people. And it's like, people ran with that shit. And of course they make conclusions like the leaner you can be, the better. Like, you yeah. know that. <laughs> so that's my two cents on that, I suppose. No, I think that's super important. And uh, yeah, I'm glad I asked the question, even though maybe you haven't read it, but and I want to dig into it now, but I've certainly seen people jump on it being like, there's something special about like whole animal products, like whole milk diet, like egg white, like get rid of egg whites or you should have the whole eggs. And right so, on. yeah, it can be scary when people take single studies and, talking about like not reading research and things i don't spend that much time reading into it because i'm a practitioner and i have sure. people that i trust to be able to disperse that information like your videos sure. the mass research review fantastic man handsome's <laughs> yeah. doing tons of stuff and then if i want to you guys all basically reference things so like in i know in the hypertrophy book and i just read mel's book as well on uh, habits so i'm halfway mm -hmm. through that and mm -hmm. it's referenced so I can dig into the studies sure. if I want yep. to. And I think that's ultimately, especially for the readers uh, or listeners, rather, that's the the place, that's the, where the gold is, because then you can dig into it if you need to. And also, that's perfectly valid, Steve. Also, another concern is you don't know which studies are going to get replicated or not. And if anyone wants to read about this, uh, just Google Greg Knuckles and like study replication. Greg has a bunch of really great writings about like a lot of studies are just one-offs. And people are concluding a bunch of stuff. And, and then the next time someone does a similar study, it's not replicated, which means that the first results may be aberrant. It's just like, you know, every study has a certain probability of being two things. One, forged, which we saw with the Barbalo studies, which just made up their statistics, which is terrible. And then two, just off by, by just by chance, concluding something that's not in evidence. You know, if you get a, a group of boys and girls together to do physical tasks against each other, and they're, let's say, post-pubertal age 16, uh, you know, one out of 100, or maybe probably five out of 100 groups of boys versus girls, 10 boys versus 10 girls, the girls will be superior to the boys just by selection chance. Like, 
you just happen to have a volleyball team on one side and a bunch of nerd guys on the other and the volleyball players are female and they fucking just dominate on every physical test you could one of those studies could come out just on that one sample size 10 versus 10 they'd be like dude girls are stronger than guys what are you gonna do like you're gonna be like oh yeah i'm just like the the nba stops recruiting men and starts recruiting women to the, the actual nba not WNBA. you just have to be nuts to do something like that but you're like oh it's a study like well, what about the other studies so a lot of times people run with one study and understand how limited a study is. Like we need a study to be replicated and not just exactly, but in slightly different ways. Like for example, volume and hypertrophy. How many different studies have attempted to understand the volume hypertrophy relationship a ton? As a matter of fact, this is like one of the most hilarious things. And I was on your podcast debating Lyle about this. Uh, the volume, so the, the, uh, the study that Brad Schoenfeld studied, Brad Schoenfeld, James Krieger hypertrophy study was a literal replication in almost every facet of a previous study from Brazil that did almost the same thing and came up with even more insane results as far as volume being that much better. And the Schoenfeld study showed the volume was much better, but like it was two studies now. So like people are like, well, the Schoenfeld study's fucked up. Like, what do you think about the study that came before it? Nobody ever addressed that shit. It's like replication. If a bunch of studies from different perspectives are all showing you, yeah, on average, more volume is better. Now you start to think you're onto something. But if it's just one study here and there, like that Barbalo study, where it was like shown that like, hypertrophy peaked at like five sets per week, just training once a week. And people are like, that doesn't make any sense, but I guess that's true. Like, well, it turns out that group made up a bunch of fucking research and literally just fabricated shit. How do those people feel now? Mm -hmm. Like, you just got to feel like shit recommending stuff. So anytime a single study comes out, people ask like, what do you think about it? I don't. I want to see that study integrated in a, in a literature review, checking the balance of the evidence. And, uh, you know, one or two aberrant studies if you have 10 studies, eight of them point in one direction and two point in a weird direction, what do you think about those two studies? I don't. I think it might just be chance. They might be onto something, but that's just not highly unlikely. I just reason from, from probabilities and it's eight, eight things are one way and two things are another way and they're all high quality studies. I'm going to go with the eight. You know what I mean? So. And actually on that note of another study that's just come into my head, and I don't know if this is another one, it might be another one pointing in a certain direction. I don't know if you know the the one that was essentially a strength phase following before a hypertrophy phase. Did you have any thoughts on that one? Uh, did it kind yeah. of push your mind in uh, the same direction as others have? So there's two studies, actually, and Menno just described the other study. There's one study in which they did a strength phase first, uh, and then there's another study where the conclusions are actually like doing a strength phase after <laughs> is better. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the amount of insight you can get about strength hypertrophy phases from beginner undergraduates is unbelievably limited. As a matter of fact, taking volume landmarks into account, the volume landmarks may be more hypertrophic in the strength realm than they are in the hypertrophy right. realm because hypertrophy could just be too much. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, is so, so there was the one study that showed that they got better hypertrophy results by doing a strength phase first. And then there was another study that showed actually the reverse. Uh, so what do we conclude on that? My default conclusion has been that uh, hypertrophy, so the strength training doesn't really enhance hypertrophy outcomes much in any special way. But hypertrophy training enhances strength outcomes in the long term. So, you know, if you do one phase of hypertrophy training and then a strength phase after, uh, you're testing almost nothing. Because like a couple, like a one month of hypertrophy is just like, it doesn't do almost anything yeah. at all. If you, if you test people, especially more like intermediate people, you'd give them several months of hypertrophy training, then tra train them in strength after versus the opposite. And you test strength at the end of that, the group that just did strength 
recently is going to be stronger just on specificity alone. If they've been training like that, both groups are going to have the same muscularity, except the group that did strength last is going to be stronger because it has the more specific adaptations. We don't even really need a study to show that because a bunch of studies have hinted at it in various different ways, hundreds of studies that have hinted at that. Like, are we really debating the specificity principle anymore? Like, that's kind of insane. So that's kind of what I think about that. And I know I don't. I think the, the, the two studies that recently come out fall in line with the other balance of the evidence to show that uh, there is seemingly nothing magical about increasing your strength that somehow benefits your long-term hypertrophy short of if you're very overreached and you're very uh, volume uh, desensitized, uh, a low volume phase, whether it be for strength or not, is probably conducive to enhanced gains in the long term. It could be active rest, it could be maintenance, it could be strength. Just getting away from high volumes for a time can reinvigorate high volumes later. But like that's the only context in which strength training actually enhances hypertrophy. And it's funny because you look at the way most bodybuilders train most of the biggest people on the planet, they don't, they don't train for strength. They just train for hypertrophy kind of almost all the time. And then they take breaks when they get tired. Um, I just, you know, it's rare that you see a bodybuilder strapping up and wrapping up and doing 800 pound squats. And Ronnie Coleman did it. And a couple other people did it. But most guys don't do it. And they're just about the same size. You know, like Big Ramey's the size of Ronnie Coleman. He's I'm not aware he's trained for strength ever. Like all of his stuff is in the moderate repetition range. It doesn't even seem to go to failure all the time. I actually physically just spoke with Jay Cutler like three days ago. And Very he told cool. Jared and I in the in the gym parking lot, he's never a single time gone to failure ever. He should <laughs> like, have recorded that. Failure. <laughs> <laughs> right? He said it on Fuad's podcast, so it's already recorded. Uh, but Fuad's like, so you went to failure. And he was like, no, never. And they were like, God damn it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so there's a, a situation there where, you know, with the strength training that if the mechanisms are a big question mark, the downsides are unknown. Like at some point as a champion bodybuilder, I'll put you this way, Jared's, Jared's physique look excellent, right? Excellent physique, tons of promise. And I look at his pecs and he's really strong, like just genetically, naturally, his strength is just out there and he can push it real hard. We could have him barbell incline in six months, he could be inclining 405 for reps. Like that's how strong he is. And then he would tear his pec. Uh, and then what would we do with a fucking peckless Jared Feather? Would that impact his physique uh, and his competition results? Oh my God, it would a ton. Um, and why the fuck would we do that? So to me, when people say like, well, we should be training for strength, like more fatigue, more injury risk, and this is supported by the literature, strength training is more risky than bodybuilding training and hypertrophy training then what is it that we have to gain? And if you have one study that says like, oh, strength training enhanced results, and then you have another study that says, no, it didn't. And you have a bunch of other studies that say like, ah, it's a kind of a moot point. People can't even propose a mechanism. And a lot of the times, man, people's ideas of what the mechanism is, is real junior league shit that they just haven't thought through. I don't mean to be offensive to anybody, but they'll say like, well, doesn't making a muscle stronger let you lift more weight and thus impose more mechanical tension? Like, uh, yes, on the whole muscle, yes. But what about uh, you know muscle growth? As Chris Beardsley has pointed out very uh, astutely, muscle growth only occurs per fiber. Like it's each muscle fiber grows on its own. And how do you get maximum fiber recruitment? Well, you can get that through moderate loads, just going close to failure. So if you're saying getting stronger overall can let you impose more tension on the muscles, like mm, actually changes the architecture, changes the way the nervous system fires, improves your technique. So that the per muscle tension, per fiber tension experienced by all the muscle fibers, 
probably is no different um, as, a, as a volume load factor if you're doing hypertrophy training versus strength training. So now what is it, what is it that you're getting? People say, well, it's good to get stronger. You get strong over time doing hypertrophy training. I used to be able to bench 100 kilos for 10. Now I can bench 115 for 10. Like that's strong over time, except it's in that rep range we need anyway. Uh, and, and another thing, because, and so this is something probably Menno would point out, um, if you are doing strength training blocks, entire blocks, like three mesocycles at a time to enhance your bodybuilding performance, oh, my wake up alarm, sorry. Um, if you're doing that, you're, you're saying two things. One, that the strength training is going to benefit your hypertrophy training somehow. But here's what else you're saying, that it benefits it so much that you're willing to piss away three or four months of potentially making uh, hypertrophy gains to have some crazy cross-potentiating effect that makes you stronger later. And that's a bold claim, right, Steve? Like, like it's strength training is somehow changing your underlying abilities so much that the next hypertrophy phase isn't just going to be a little better. It's going to be so much better that it's going to make up for a total fucking lack of a hypertrophy phase of three or four months. Fuck, like, I would love for that to be true because, you know, like Renaissance periodization, it would just give me an opportunity to periodize things more. But unfortunately, bodybuilding periodization is just much more straightforward. Um, and uh, I love strength training. I used to be a power lifter. I would love an excuse to go heavy and to tell people to go heavy. And it's strength training is so linear and so logical. It's like, just put more, five more pounds on the bar, forget my muscle connection, all this dumb shit, just a good technique and get stronger. But I just haven't found that to be in evidence. And a bunch of other folks in the industry have also sort of do that. The last conversation that Eric Helms and I had about a year ago about this, he was kind of like, yeah, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any real sense. Like it doesn't, when you think about it, it doesn't add up that strength training somehow really just really improve hypertrophy more than hypertrophy. That's what we're seeing more than hypertrophy training for a short time. That's a hell of a claim. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Yeah, I think it was the authors in that paper that I'm talking about did conclude that. So if someone was to cherry pick it and be like, sure. oh, but this study says this and the authors sure. say this and they just read the abstract or just the conclusion. Sure. And yeah, they're missing. That's how you read studies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, you're missing all the other information. I know, uh, I think it was in mass, basically, it came down to them concluding that it was like, maybe it was a point in the direction of cycling your volume somewhat is a, a benefit. And that's, Which nobody debates. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nobody intelligence debating that. Nobody says we need to do all the same volume at the same time. You get tired, you get bored, you get this and that. And it's a good idea to take your volume and get a little lower and then maybe pump it up a little higher, but you can't survive volume. Like that's the stuff we've written about in a volume landmarks book like two or three fucking years ago. Like cycling your volume is probably a good idea, but the cycling has to be logical and you can't assume that there's these magical things. Um, I remember like people were asking like when we introduced the concept of resensitization phase people would ask us like, how long should it be and we're like i don't know like a month and then it can be three months and i just work on strength and this is like in the rp plus uh webinars and james and i'd be like you know after about a month your body's really quite resensitized to high volumes like a month of doing sets of three and five reps dude you do a set of 10 your biceps get the biggest pump of your life like you're fucking ready two three months after it's just yeah you're getting stronger from a neurological and architectural perspective that doesn't potentiate your muscle gains anymore. And it's just time you could have spent getting more jacked. Uh, and, and that's the, that, so there's a, a huge limit to that. So spending entire training phases, training for strength is, um, it just doesn't add up. I don't think now, maybe I'm wrong. All these are tentative conclusions, but all we have to go on so far, the balance of the evidence is that it's just not, it's not worthwhile.
Yeah, it's something uh, I've been playing with the after we'd been discussing it more, the using more active recovery phases, like a post deload week of just like not doing too much. Sure. Uh, more than using the kind of a whole month of strength training. Uh, at least a lot of the people I work with and myself included, it's kind of like a bit of a relief that you don't need to spend all that time training for strength. It's like I can get back into the hypertrophy training maybe a bit mm -hmm. sooner, which is mm -hmm. is nice. And also beat up your joints less. I mean, people don't talk yeah. about that part of it a lot. Um, I think there's a significant fraction, not a majority, but a significant fraction of the natural community that does both physique sports and strength sports. And they're always looking like the rest of us for justifications of the practices. And they want to see that powerlifting and bodybuilding really support each other. And unfortunately, they usually don't. Um, usually not. Sometimes they do, but they usually don't. And they're going to jump on studies like this all the time. Uh, a lot of people want to be jacked, but they hate doing high reps because they're painful or they're boring. They want to ego lift and they want to do strength training. So a lot of people will jump on studies like this real quick and say, hey, like this is like awesome because strength training looks like it potentiates hypertrophy training. So they could justify entire blocks of sets of three and five reps and singles and stuff. And uh, we have to be aware of our biases. You know, um, I would love for that to be the case, but it's not. And luckily, if it makes hypertrophy training periodization more simple, but also kind of less sexy. I would love for it to be more complex, but I just don't think it is. So, and, and maybe we're wrong, but so far, most of the research says it just doesn't really add up. On the note of Fouad's podcast, are there any plans for you to be on there? I was hoping there might be. Well, yeah, I, I think you have to be invited on the podcasts and uh, <laughs> I haven't been invited yet. I was like, okay. I'm a big fan. I would love to appear, but I think I have to be a uh, uh, asked on first so. i feel like your name because i'd been I, ever since i saw i think brad uh, schoenfeld was on there and then i started seeing and i was like oh this is quite a fun podcast he interviews some interesting people so i've been listening to some and i think i've heard your name actually come up before on it matt jansen mentioned me i think yeah i think the, he did with regards to like how hard reps and reserve training actually is he's like yeah. it's not easy it's not easy it's not like you're just quitting at some point like it's fucking tough so that was really cool it was really neat of matt to say that. yeah it'll be cool if yeah, I mean, it was cool to see Brad on there. I know Lane's been on there, so maybe he'll breach uh, into more of, I guess, some of the evidence space L kind of guys. Lower into the dirty part <laughs> of the evidence base handbag. Like, oh, I guess Mike is Rattel. <laughs> um, awesome. So I'll get into the listener questions now. I've been selfish enough. So uh, Brett McGee has asked, how do you, uh, how do you, or how would you track a systemic MRV for yourself? For context, I do my own programming. And there are mesocycles where I am wrecked by the end, deload, and I'm good to start a new mesocycle. Other times, even after a deload, systemically, I still feel wrecked. In certain muscles, though, I still feel like I could benefit from more volume, but I know I wouldn't be able to systemically. Is this where specialization phase comes in? Uh, how, would you, how do you handle this potential problem in your program for yourself or others? Yeah, you just train in a very similar way mesocycle after mesocycle after mesocycle and at some point you realize you're systemically getting too messed up which is to say like a lot of local musculature like like uh, like he said is not where it could be like you could do more but just it's just overall you're just beat up and tired and demotivated and sleep problems and eating problems and so on and so forth so then at that point you conclude you're like okay uh, seemingly i'm hitting a systemic wall at that point you say okay next mesocycle if i want these smaller muscle groups or whatever these target muscle groups to really get their full breadth from MEV and MRV i have to pull the plug on some stuff and put it on maintenance volume. And uh, James and I usually recommend pulling the plug on 
the muscle groups that really affect systemic volume. As some people say, like, yeah, but systemically overreached, so I took out forearms. But like, with forearms, you could do every day of your life for six sessions a day and be completely fine systemically. It's a tiny muscle. Um, so, you know, like maybe if your legs are a strong suit, put them on maintenance volume and just train them for strength for a couple of months. And then your chest and back can really get just fried up. Especially legs, especially legs, chest, and back are the big ones that really fatigue the flying fuck out of you systemically, especially legs. Like if you didn't have to train legs hard, dude, you could take your upper body to MRV locally, no problem. But leg training, like I don't know about you, Steve, but leg training for me fucks me up acutely for like six hours. Like I'm just not in a right headspace. I just feel like I get out of a chair and even though I'm not even sore yet, my whole body is just like quit, just stop, just die. Like if you could just go into a corner and die for a while, it'll be better. And that, it adds up, man. So two big leg workouts a week, like you and I do, shit counts. So a lot of people, you know, they're all reaching my systemic MRV. Should I reduce my delts? Should I reduce biceps? Like you got to take the big muscle groups out of play just one at a time and just for a little while. Reduce back volume to maintenance volume, reduce chest volume, reduce leg volume, maybe not all at the same time, maybe just one of those and see how much better you feel. And you'll probably feel much better, be able to push all of your other muscles into their local MRVs and hit systemic MRV at a time when all of them hit local and then you're good to go. Yeah, you know, leg training, I think, especially when you're more advanced at least, but this has been something I've particularly felt the last couple of years where it's just, I, ever since I spoke to you, I think it was the same seminar you were just mentioning where you kind of saw me and were like, oh, you look bigger. Um, I spoke to you about the fact that I felt like I could give my legs more, but I couldn't do it both. And you were like, why don't you split it AM and PM? So I'd been running hamstrings and like quads in the AM and PM separately for a long time. But after a while, each session, especially in the overreaching week, was becoming like an hour and a half each session. Yeah. And it was just like, after I'd done my morning one and have the evening one, I was just like, man, I don't even. So I've now, uh, this is probably my last mass mezzo, but I've spread legs over three days, which at the moment is quite nice because it's like I just get to punch them off and I'm not splitting them AM and PM. It's just like I hit my hams and quads in one session. So it's like fucking done. And then I get a light session in the evening. I found that quite a relief, but I don't think I'm going to be able to sustain when I go to an upper, lower, upper, lower, upper, lower. It does. It's not super sustainable. <laughs> it's tough, man. It's tough. Yeah. At some point, if you want to open up more room for the rest of your body to grow, taking legs and putting them on maintenance volume is a big switch you yeah. can pull because legs and systemic fatigue kind of go hand in hand. Um, and you know, you're probably not your bicep training isn't making you systemically fatigued, or your contribution is just so small. So if if you really systemic fatigue is the big problem you should probably consider pulling the big switches on it so that you can really solve the problem. Um, and the cool thing about maintenance is your muscles don't go away and they resensitize. So when your legs have been at maintenance for, you know, say two mesocycles, they haven't lost any size and they're really primed to grow. And it's not clear to me, and there are several studies confirming this, that you don't get almost the same long-term growth by spending a considerable portion of the year in maintenance because you get what people have termed catch-up growth, you know, like a muscle is really resensitized and it sort of has a lot more oomph to it. Over the long term, you could probably spend like a quarter of the year at maintenance for everything and get the identical results as if you spend 0% of the year in maintenance. Um, there's a couple of studies that show that on a smaller scale and theoretically it makes a lot of sense. So people, I think a lot of times have this uh, sort of recalcitrance to 
actually doing a maintenance phase for their legs because they're like, oh, but I want them to keep growing. If you do like a meso or two here and there, back off on your legs, long-term, your legs will be almost certainly very close to, if not the same size they would have been if you just kept training all the time, except you buy yourself the ability to train your other muscle groups that much more. So uh, it's, it's really, it sounds scary to put something on the maintenance because you're like, I'm literally admitting defeat. <laughs> um, but over the long term, I think it makes a ton of sense. I think it's something I've, I'm slowly swallowing the pill on <laughs> that I'm going to have to start specializing because I haven't yet, I haven't done it. I've just been pushing sure. everything. I think after that, hopefully I'm going to compete this season and then I think I'm going to have to start doing that. And it's nothing I've had. I tend to really put it off with clients who kind of like they can get the volume in and they can keep going. And I, I don't think it's something a lot of people need until they've had like no, that decade absolutely of training. Correct. Most people don't need specialization. But I think I'm getting to the point. I know I spoke to Jared, I don't know, maybe even a year ago. He was like, how long have you been training? Yeah, you probably need to start specializing. And I've just been mm -hmm. putting it off because it is that kind of like, it's a bit of an unknown because it, programming needs to change a little bit and i have to think a bit more about that again okay. um but also it's you kind of get worried that you're like oh i want this everything to grow and it all needs totally to i will say that when you do a specialization phase and you pull it off really well it, you just have to do it once and you're a believer for forever because like all you do is put legs for example on the back burner for three months and you train your back and chest really hard and you make these crazy consistent prs on the back and chest you're like oh my god and then you're like this is what i was missing like you know we've all had these workouts like this is my typical week where i've done legs and then i show up like the next day to do back and i look at the pull-up bar and i'm like Ugh, can't i just die instead like if i come to that workout like with all the fucking grit and energy i usually have oh my god it's just gonna go way better and it adds up on itself so it's it's definitely like for some reason with biceps, because I just don't like training them. I have trouble with my muscle connection and I'm always like systemically fatigued by the time I get to biceps and I think it kills me. I'm, I'm right now I'm specializing biceps. So I've actually reduced my shoulder volume considerably, which I'm like always looking at my delts now and be like, ah, damn it. They could be bigger. But at the my bicep, my biceps are adding strength really consistently. And I'm like, all right, just shut up and get the gains. But a lot of times systemic fatigue wise from leg, from shoulder, from everything else, by the time I get to my biceps, I'm curling and I'm going to failure, but it's neurological failure. It's not local failure. My biceps locally, you have five more reps in them, but like my nervous system's just like, just stop. And I'm just like, Ugh. you know, there's like glass part of the curl where you're like, Ugh. you feel like your spirit leaving your body. Like, fuck this. So if you're getting to that point, yeah, try lowering your volume in other places and you'll realize like, oh my God, my other muscle groups are coming up crazy. Sometimes people only experience that when they get hurt. Like for people who get like a knee injury and they can't train legs for six months, and they're like, dude, my upper body's fucking on a tear. Like it's getting huge. Like, well, what do you think that is, man? That's literally just specializations, forced specialization phase. Um, some people will like get like a hernia surgery or something and be out for two weeks and they don't know what deloads are. They'll come back and they're like, my yeah. body feels so amazing. Like, you know, you could do this without hernia surgery. And like, nah, fuck that. Is that how you tend to specialize, Mike? If you just taken, is it just shoulders and biceps that you've manipulated or is there anything else you've done? I've done a ton of other stuff, man. I've done. No, oh, a ton sorry, of stuff. I just mean now or oh, like yeah. generally. So, so right now, um, I there's always a ton of stuff in the works. So, like right now, I'm uh, not training my calves super, super hard because uh, calf training it just occurs like frequently for me, and it's just another thing where at the end of a workout or at the beginning, I have to train calves. And I'm like, God damn it, and it just saps the fuck out of you. You're like, why am I doing this? So my calves are of uh, growing pretty well. I'm also in a mass phase. Calves just tend to grow in a mass phase easily because you're just bigger and walk around. 
So I'm, I'm trying to make caps hard, but not nearly at, uh, all the way to MRV or whatever. Um, I'm definitely have reduced my shoulder training to much less than I could recover from, probably MEV. Uh, my shoulders go really well anyway, so it's not a big deal. I'm torching my chest, torching my triceps, torching my back, and my legs are on, on front burner. Um, the good news for me for like hamstrings, I have to do so little to get my hamstrings to grow and my MRV is so small really just not a big systemic contributor. Um, but that's how my shit looks right now. And I'm really, really trying to get my biceps going. The thing is I usually train shoulders and biceps in the same session. So if I reduce my shoulder volume, it really helps the biceps out because it's in the same session. They really have a huge cross effect on each other. I suppose in a way, the way you describe that, I've almost intuitively been specializing a little bit because I definitely do that where I'm like, man i traps are pretty big i'm just going to keep it at two sets like I, they're, they're feeling fine mm -hmm. from just two sets so i definitely and totally. my biceps i don't tend to add totally. much from the beginning right. through so oh, here's a, here's another one i didn't mention i for the like six months ago i stopped training traps specifically completely but for a year before that Charlie and I were training partners and we really hammered our traps because he needed just traps to grow a ton he's so just basically traps. He has huge traps. So here's the thing, Steve, like just before that, he transitioned from powerlifting. He had almost no traps at all. They were his weakest muscle group by far. It was embarrassing. He's like, man, I just like don't have it for big traps. And I was like, no, maybe. Let's see. We just started shrugging a bunch. Surprise. Traps got, these traps are fucking enormous. Yeah. Mine grew a ton. But the cool thing is for me and for most people, if you do proper full range of motion back and shoulder training, your trap maintenance volume is zero direct sets. I haven't done a direct shrug in months and my traps are exactly as big as they ever were, probably a little bit bigger because of the full ROM crazy raises. I fuck my traps up completely. So that's been great because like, you know, like all these, like you and I train traps and we train forms and all sorts of shit. That stuff fucking adds up, man. And at some point you're like, man, fuck pushing all this all the time. Some of it's got to be reduced and, and those are good candidate muscles. So if you reduce your shoulder training and your trap training and your calf training, that actually opens up quite a bit of systemic MRV. What I don't want people to do is just reduce one of those and think they've opened up a wellspring. But people like, sometimes they just, people read verbatim off stuff because they don't have a lot of training experience. They're like, all right, I want to emphasize quads. So I'm going to de-emphasize traps. What do you guys think? We're like, uh, are your traps as big as your quads? <laughs> what are you talking about? You'd have to de-emphasize traps and forearms and biceps and calves so that quad fatigue would be equated. That's probably like four muscles to one at that point. Maybe that's not even enough. So uh, you've got to keep that in perspective that it, to move the needle, you really have to move. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Uh, let's get to the next question. So this is from Jim Rat, and he has asked, as I see, uh, Dr. Mike likes to use barbell free weights exercises like the bent over row a lot. However, as I assume, he also has access to great chest supported machines with which he could fry his back without as much systemic fatigue. Why then is he doing bent over rows, free weight squats, etc.? Does he feel he is getting the st st uh, a better stimulus from these exercises that you couldn't get from a machine? Yes. Yes, unequivocally, yes. The raw stimulus magnitude for me for barbell bent rows is something I can't replicate with any other exercise. Look, I'm just like everyone else. I don't, barbell bent rows are fun to do, fun, but the bending over part is fucking annoying, especially when my hamstrings are sore, which they always are. My glutes are sore, which they fucking always are. And it's systemically like having to fucking pick up a barbell off the ground, fucking it's awful. Um, the thing is when I do barbell rows, the eccentric load, the pump, the fatigue, the mind-muscle connection 
is top to bottom for my whole back. I feel parts of my back on bent rows. I didn't even know existed if I just did rowing machines. Like, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't know my lats inserted this low. My erectors get a fucking crazy pump. It's this otherworldly experience. And so as far as that's raw stimulus magnitude, the raw stimulus magnitude for me, all that shit is insane. Barbell squats, nothing quite fucks me in my quads like barbell squats do. Even all the hack squats and leg press in the world, which I love, which proper technique are great. There's something missing. There's some adductor work missing, some, uh, you know, some other muscle areas, parts of the quad, the, the high bar squat to depth just hits in this magical, magical way. And the same thing, and if I was healthy enough to do them, unfortunately I'm not, barbell flat bench presses uh, hit my chest in a way that's just not really comparable to everything else. And especially if that's a weakness of yours, if you want to bring up the raw stimulus magnitude exercises are really great. Deadlifts are actually really good for putting slabs of meat on your erectors and your upper traps and your rhomboids in a way that a lot of machines may just not be able to disrupt homeostasis enough to actually get done. So, and the thing is, I didn't just like make this up. I wish it wasn't the case. I have done, um, what's it called? Uh, chest supported rows till I'm blue in the face. I've done them both strict in the sense of like, there's no back movement at all. And I've done the Mike Isretel style, which is a flexion and extension combo. Um, and, and those are fine. They're good, but it's, uh, I have a similar comparison of pull downs to pull-ups when I do pull-ups. And unfortunately I'm too fucked up to do them right now. I get a, a stimulus to my, my, my back. That's just like, holy fuck. Like one set of pull-ups, I get a full pump in my last where I'm like, oh shit, what the fuck? And if I do like three sets of pull-downs, I get like 70% of that. And I'm just like, that's fine. Something is missing. There's a bunch of different reasons why that could be the case. But for me, the raw stimulus magnitude just doesn't add up. And for bent rows, they just fuck my back up to a level where, and it can even see this in the public. If I pull my shirt off after a bunch of bent rows and do a back pose, take a picture. I'm like, oh my shit, what the fuck is all that? I do that after some machine rows. I'm like, yeah, I got a good pump. I look fine. There's just something special there. The stimulus is enormous and it's worth the fatigue most times. So for me, that's why I do it. Um, also, uh, the bent row, because it's not supported, trains your erectors. Uh, and like nowadays I don't do deadlifts anymore because the stimulus to fatigue ratio doesn't make sense to me, but bent rows are a huge part of where I get my erector growth and the spinal erectors are like a huge percentage of your actual back visually. And if they get really big, they have a gnarliness to them that is just elevates your physique completely. Like Ronnie Coleman's back is, is like his lats were great, but his spinal erectors were some kind of what the fuck that made his back what it was. Um, it just gives you that extra thickness and freakiness that I don't I think machines have a limited ability to give you based on how pumped you get, how sore you get, how disrupted you feel, so on and so forth. For me, the barbell bent row after four or five sets, I'm just like, oh my God. Like if someone's like, hey, does your back growing? But yes, unequivocally, yes. <laughs> like something super fucked up happened. Whereas on machines, do I get a good pump and stuff? Yeah, sure. I love some back machines, but it's like, it's like good. It's good. It's not, it's not the end of the world. It's not the greatest thing ever. So for me, I can't responsibly trade out bent rows uh, because I think they have a pretty special ability to grow at least my back. The thing is, it's all individual, right? So some people do bent rows and they just get kind of dick out of them and they do some kind of cable row, which I get nothing out of ever. Uh, and they love it. They get a huge pump, huge disruption for them. I don't know why the fuck they would ever bent row. It'd be fucking stupid. But for me, it just is an awesome, awesome exercise that gives me all the proxies of a huge stimulus. It doesn't fatigue me excessively. As I say, like axial fatigue, 
Like before I stopped deadlifting, I was a 600 pound for reps deadlifter. If I'm deficit rowing 250 pounds, dude, I don't even feel, there's not systemic fatigue to me. Um, like I can do with 250, I can clean 250 and do an overhead tricep extension with it, put it back down. It's not the end of the world. Like, when I squat 250, that's just a part of my warm up on the way to you. It's not like it's not big weight. And that's one of the great things about doing a big deficit and doing full range of motion. So you don't have to impose crazy forces from the ground. There's videos of me on YouTube, strict with a big gut, nonetheless strict, doing like 350 for eight, I think, in the bent row. And I think, fucking God, I don't do that anymore. Now I'm leaner. My gut is smaller, bigger range of motion. I also do it on a deficit, bigger range of motion. So now I use 250 instead of 350 for similar reps. And my back is growing just as much or more, and I don't have to pay that huge fatigue cost. So while I do hear his point of like, yes, systemic fatigue from bending over, true. But for me, the stimulus is so great, the fatigue is worth it. And the fatigue is really not that big. Now, if you ask me like, why don't I do um, rack deadlifts for erectors? I'll tell you, it's the stimulus to fatigue ratio. Because now I'm pulling six or 700 pounds from the rack. That doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. That systemic fatigue is wild. And then there is no fucking point for me to do that. But 250 pounds to 300 pounds is not a lot of systemic fatigue for me. And it's a great hypertrophic stimulus that I wish I could replace with something easier, but I can't. It's like, you know, if you're traveling with your family on holiday and you get to a hotel and you're like, all right, I'm going to go try to find a gym in this town in Spain that has a barbell. And they're like, well, the hotel has like a free motion kind of gym thing. And you look and it's like a leg extension, leg curl combo. And they're like, see, you can train your legs. You're like, I, I can't impart to you why this is not sufficient, but it's not. There's no number of leg extensions you can do that equals the effect of like four sets of deep squats for higher reps. So that's really my answer. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Uh, I think that's a really well said because, I mean, particularly it's interesting because I've been asked similar, like why barbell bench press? Like there seems to be quite a lot of hate against a barbell bench press for hypertrophy. I guess maybe some people get a like uncomfortable feeling on their chest or they can't get yep. people argue kind of range of motion and like, like angles of forearms and like all this, <laughs> all this. But I, I have to say like what you said there, whenever I b bench press, my chest just blows up. I, yeah. I can't necessarily comment exactly why, but every time I do it, I could do a machine press or what have you. The barbell bench press just, destroys my chest like just one set and i'm already like i can feel Super it a lot pumped and everything yeah yeah so and similarly with bent over rows for me as soon as i hit a deficit that's where i was like everything switched on when i did a deficit it was exactly as you described when i wasn't doing deficit it was good but the deficit was mm -hmm. like the game changer so i think particularly when for the listeners when you watch you train mike it's not like i don't know bent over row someone might be thinking of where it's like it's kind of more of a shrug and quite upright and that sure. is probably very systemically fatiguing and they're not yes. they're not hitting a hell of a lot of the back so um but this is at least in my opinion this is one of where a lot of people look at i don't know they're doing too much time reading and seeing the perfect exercise and all these factors and they're not in the gym practicing it and feeling it for themselves sometimes i think you can overthink these things and actually when you go in there you can actually just judge it because you are your own individual and you feel the way 100%. you feel from the exercise. Yeah, give it a try. Try a one mesocycle. I encourage everyone to try at least a mesocycle. Really try to cue on that technique. It gives you the best mind-muscle connection, the best tension perception. We're burning the target muscles. Really good range of motion, slow eccentric. Try whatever exercise you think isn't for you for a mesocycle. And if the end of the meso you're like, that still sucks, you don't have to fucking do it for years or if ever. But after the end of the meso, you're like, 
this is fucking sweet, man. This is really fucking gnarly. Then maybe it's worth it. Maybe this thing is the fatigue ratio is worth it. You might do bent rows. And at the end of a mezzo, you're like, dude, holy fuck. And then you go back to machine rows and it's just like, something missing here that doesn't mean the machine rows are bad you can just make up for it by doing more sets in the machine row recalibrate your mind muscle connection with a machine row but at the end of the day could now you could be like okay these are just two different tools in the toolbox and they're kind of pretty equivalently good one of them has a bigger stimulus barbell bent row but also bigger fatigue one of them has a smaller stimulus but also smaller fatigue machine row but the stimulus to fatigue ratio equals out to about the same. So they just use them as variants for a couple of mesocycles, I'll run one for a couple of mesos, I'll run the other. Maybe when I'm doing lots of stiff-legged deadlifts and good mornings and deadlifts for posterior chain hamstring erectors, I can do machine rows because I'm too fucking tired to do anything else. Maybe when I'm doing lots of quad work and mostly like leg curls for hamstrings, then I can do lots of barrel event rows because I don't have a ton of fatigue in my posterior chain. And then that becomes uh, the basis of a logical program. And we'll say I was ranting to Jared about this. Um, uh, I'm starting to, you know, we have good days and bad days, right? Bad days on social media is when you read a person's post, you're like, how the fuck can you ask this goddamn question? And I, go, I rarely like lash out at people like that because it's quite immature. And it's always a joke if I lash out. I never lash out seriously. Because uh, I always say, usually my joke is asking them, re-asking them their question about the alternative bizarro world and one question that this continuously imposes interesting sensation on me is that people will say like so i noticed you're doing exercise x uh, what makes it superior to exercise y and i'm just like well it's usually my followers will chime in like variation shut the fuck up and a lot of people probably read that like what the fuck is variation they look it up like oh, okay this makes sense but like i could also get into the nuances of like some somebody asked me of course with all the good intentions like, what is the benefit of an assistive pull-up versus a pull down. And I could talk about like my muscle connection and I could talk about eccentric load and the rep speed is different and the force curve is different. Like an assisted pull up, the force curve is kind of similar the entire time. Whereas with a pull down, it's it's really, really hard down here, uh, but up here it's really easy. So it ends up being like your rep cadence is all weird. I could get into all the nuances and then they would read that and be like, oh, interesting, but it seems like it's just different. They're like, yes, yes. <laughs> the one's not superior to the other, they're just a little bit different. And also I don't like to give personal examples of what I feel and assume they transfer to everyone. Like I think my my mind muscle connection is great and assisted pull-ups. That's just for me and um, Trevor Fulbright and a couple other people. And then other people say they get a huge mind muscle connection from pull downs. And I've occasionally been on an assisted pull-up machine where I'm like, this is a piece of shit. I'm never using this again. And I've I've had pull pull down attachments, especially where the bar doesn't rotate a whole lot. It's kind of fixed in place. Or we've got a fucking gnarly mind muscle connection with pull downs. And I'm like, well, what if I was just built differently and I could. Uh, I, I just love pull downs more. I'm not going to go around telling people that this exercise is better for my muscle connection. I don't fucking know that to be true. Yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, my best response to those folks, which I can't post on Instagram because it's too goddamn long, which is why I say variation or it's just something different is why don't you try both at various times, try to inc incrementally improve your technique on each one to get the most out of each one. Worst comes to worst, one of them will just suck and one will be great. But I can't tell you up front which one will suck will be great. Uh, it's like, hey, what do you think about leg press versus hack squat? I'm like, you should be doing both and seeing which one works better. And a lot of times it won't be one works better all the time. It'll be like one works better for a time until it gets stale and you start doing the other one. Feels awkward at first, then it feels great, then it feels stale. All exercises go through that cycle, cycle of awkwardness incredibleness and then staleness they all have that time course now some of them do this and some of them do this so these ones down here you'll never use but a bunch of them overlap and then you just use one of them when the other one is stale and this, there's no right answers a, a similar little trolling tactic i like to use and my followers have been picking up is 
uh, you know, like someone will say, like, do you like uh, pull downs or assisted pull-ups? I'm like, do you like rice or pasta? And they're like, well, it just depends on what I feel like. Like, ta-da! <laughs> if you eat rice for 10 years straight, you might want some pasta because not, one's not better than the other. But then again, I get the same food questions of like, well, I literally post a bowl of rice. They'll be like, so what's wrong? I've literally had the comment, literally. So what's wrong with pasta? I'm like, did I ever say anything was wrong with pasta? Like, yeah, but you're not eating it. I'm like, what color car do you have? Why isn't it purple? What's wrong with purple cars? Do you hate purple cars and purple people? Are you a fucking racist? <laughs> They'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, exactly. So a lot of times there's this quest for optimality that misses all the variation. And, and if this has not helped, although I, I, I almost always blame the user, uh, the suppliers are just people, uh, you know, there's no suppliers don't stick unless the users want, but there's an infinite number of YouTube videos talking about the best chest exercise, the best back exercise. And people like, even if you never click on them, just through scanning thumb thumbnails, you sort of colloquially absorb the idea that there's the best of everything. Yeah. Um, it's almost like asking someone like, hey, you know, like uh, you're into hypercars, let's say like, you know, the Bugatti, the Ferrari, the Snap, be like, which the best one? Like anyone who is who knows hypercars will say like, well, there's no best. It's just what you want. Like you can get a Pagani for the artistry and the and the way the car is made and the history, or you can get a Lambo, which is a pretty decent one, but it's not anything special, but it's also pretty affordable. You can get a McLaren for the tip top of the top, and it costs seven fucking million dollars. Like they're all up here, and it's all a bunch of different good stuff. It's not like one's clearly superior, and that's like a fallacy people bring in all the time to exercise and eating. And and they're not wrong on principle because, yeah, there are better and worse things. But because things get stale, the process of variation is really keeps a bunch of things in the mix. So try them all. Brilliantly said, Mike. And on that, I should probably let you go. I know you're busy and you've got a whole day ahead of you right now. So um, is there anything exciting in the works? Anything to let people know about? Or is it still YouTube, all that good stuff there? Still the good stuff, Steve. I because you and I rambled for too long. Uh, if you're good for it, I can probably do another question. Okay, the least I can do. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, let's for sure. do another question. Fuck it. Right. So uh, here we go. It's from this is quite a long question. So let's go for it. It's from H Man, and he said, "I have a question on RAR progression versus functional overreaching as it pertains to when to deload. As I understand it, deloading is determined by an overall drop in performance." At the same time, there's the idea of progressing RAR, so say over the week, few weeks, I progressed RAR from three to two. Typically, in this time, I've also picked up a lot of fatigue, so when I go into week four, shooting for one RAR because of fatigue, overall performance was worse than week three at two RAR. The question slash confusion is, watching the one RAR day videos RP has been putting up recently, it looks like the trainees are going into that week and exceeding the prior week's performance. And that makes sense to me. It's what I think should be happening to me as well. What I am doing, what am I doing wrong that's leading me to have worse one RAR week performance? In practice, you usually just know that, sorry, in practice, yeah, in practice, you usually just know that next week I won't be able to beat last week. Do you just call it preemptively and deload? Great question. So um, is it H-Man? That's the... The, the username so h-man um i would, I would recommend cole. a video i know it's cole i know that's his name oh, i'm pretty cole. sure it's okay. cole okay well steve you're terrible with names so i'm, I'm <laughs> gonna call him, <laughs> call him <laughs> h-man <laughs> you guys, it turns out the guy's name's not cole at all we just call him cole <laughs> so um uh, a great video that i can recommend great self-serving um is the rep match or beat system of progression and that's on the rp strength youtube so just renaissance Prioritization youtube just type in my name and Renaissance and rep match beat and you'll get the video. It's like a 20 minute long video. 
it describes the system that we actually use at RPE. And the system is actually quite simple. You start at something like three RIR in week one, and then you don't really target two and then one and then zero RIR in the next weeks. You keep that in mind. But what you're doing is just increasing like one rep at a time or five or two and a half, five or 10 pounds at a time, just increase a little bit. And then at some point by increasing, cumulative fatigue comes up and you just keep increasing uh, the absolute effort that at some point you will hit failure. You will hit zero RIR. It just has to happen. What you can do is after every session or every week, you can sort of choose your next week's increase based on knowing that you're targeting a rough RIR. So for example, if I hit two RIR this week, um, and I had gone up by 10 pounds from last week in a lift. I hit two RIR and I hit all my rep stuff that I wanted. And it felt like really two RIR. I could be like, you know what? Like I can definitely go up by um, uh, five pounds next week. But I know that two RIR training fatigues me more than three RIR did. So my cumulative fatigue is starting to come up a little bit. I hit these numbers this week. But if I put 10 pounds on the bar another time next week, uh, I'm not going to be able to match my reps at one RIR. Um, and we always say you got to match or beat your reps. You have to match or beat your reps slash load your performance, right? So the RIR goals are fine, but you got to match or, or beat and then hit your RIR goals. So if you can't, if you get to one RIR, but you're still a rep shy away from where you're supposed to be, do another rep. And you go, fuck, I just went to failure. But, like, but yeah, that means you deload next time because you literally spent the tank. So if you, if you know that your strength is starting to dwindle, then you can plan smaller progressions and still check the boxes of actually hitting one RIR and progressing. So if you're feeling really good next week, you could do 10 pounds or 15 pounds more. If you're feeling like, I don't know, that was fine, but I don't think I can keep going like this. Maybe just do five pounds more or one and a half or two and a half pounds more. Or maybe instead of adding two reps, add one rep or something, right? Or add zero reps and just go a little bit up in weight. That way, you can sort of match how you're feeling week to week to week to the rough goals and hit the mini PRs at the same time. So an ideal training cycle is one in which you go from three R all the way to zero and you hit mini PRs all the way. But they don't have to be the same size PR. That can be adjusted based on how you think you'll be able to handle next week. So if you're looking at your leg press and you're like, God damn, I'm supposed to do how many reps at what weight? Let me be easier on that and just do a little bit less. Now, that still has to be a PR because if you're not doing mini PRs within mesocycle PRs, I don't know why you're training. Because somebody could say like, oh yeah, great workout. You're like, technically it was worse than last week. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, yeah, I should be deloading, right? If you're getting, you're not supposed to be getting weaker within a mesocycle. It's a really bad idea. Also, I don't know what, where the overload is coming from maximally because if you're getting weaker, you're providing less overload. So yes, there is some calibration that has to be done, but I wouldn't overthink the RIR stuff too much and just try to add a little bit of load or a few reps to the bar every single time. And then at the end of that process, you're going to have to deload at some point and know your one RIR performance should not be lower than your two RIR performance. If that's actually the case, you absolutely need to deload because your cry, your, your accumulated fatigue is too high. But the next time you do a mesocycle similar to that, plan your loads and progressions and volumes in such a way that allows you to keep hitting mini PRs until roughly the time of your planned deload. Like if you've gone, if you plan on doing four accumulation weeks and you've done two and you know you're not going to hit a PR in week three, you fucked up. Use either too much relative effort or too much uh, volume. A lot of times that's where the problem if you're doing five sets of an exercise, you'll be able to recover just fine to do it again next time and do a mini PR. If you're doing 10 sets of that exercise, you could do one week and then not hit a PR after that because the volume itself accumulated fatigue. 
So uh, you learn over time to sort of plan out where you can get for sure mini PRs and then survive to play another day. And it always plays to, pays to be a little bit more conservative than a little bit more aggressive. Because if you're a little bit too conservative, you just PR by a little bit, look, you, you're still not super fatigued. You still get to go for next week, right? But if you're too aggressive, you could be cutting yourself off and have to deload or do take some kind of recovery phases, maybe a recovery session or a half week for that muscle group specifically. And then that's time you're not uh, overloading, which is fine. But, you know, there's, there's, it's also like there's more injury risk and stuff like that. Uh, what are you accumulating off fatigue for to hit some kind of arbitrary PR? So I would say that uh, there's the only discordance in the question. The only thing that really is concerning me is you're really targeting RIRs and letting your performance follow RIR versus the other way around. Perform at the level you need, which is to say a mini PR, and then you look at your RIR, what it actually was, and you see how close was it to my target RIR. And if it was off, then you can, uh, you know, next time you come into the gym, try not to PR by as much. And if any PR at all is impossible, yes, it's time for some kind of recovery, whether it be a deload or a uh, recovery half week or a light session for a muscle, something has to give because you can no longer progress. And that's the, the key component. So progression is absolutely number one. RAR targets should just reflect that progression. So I, I and, and that's a big uh, detraction in my view from a consistent RAR system people just hit like two RIR the entire meso like and they'll say well I had some good workouts and some bad workouts and some good workouts like Jesus Christ like how do you know that's not all psychological and targeting a certain RIR is real tough like how do I know I'm not off start conservative and just add a little bit add a little bit add a little bit and when you can't add anymore then it's time to deload and if that happens too soon you know next time to add a little bit more slowly if you're adding so slowly that like six weeks later you're systemically fatigued but you you know, locally, you can keep pushing it. You're like, man, I've just not been aggressive enough. Imagine you could be adding five pounds to your bench press every week, but you've been adding a pound, like mini plates. You know, I just want to be making sure I'm not going overboard. So I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? At least add two and a half. So you don't want to be here. You don't want to be here, but you want to be here. And this, it takes a few mesocycles, maybe a whole training career to figure out. And you can always adjust on the fly. Just make sure you're placing that pro aggressive performance first and RAR targets as a hazy general guide, not the other way around. You don't like, I have to hit two RAR because remember, that's already an impossible statement because you don't know where the fuck two RAR is. You just don't know. It's a guess, but performance is never a guess. You, you can tell factually with 100% certainty, I hit more reps with more load than I did last time. There's literally no subjectivity to it at all. Like I just fucking did versus RIR is like, I don't know, maybe that was two, maybe that was three, maybe that was four, maybe that was one. Like it's always a guess. So keep the objective stuff first and foremost, first and foremost, great technique. Second, increase performance. And then third, make sure your performance increases roughly correspond to your rough target RIRs. And if the shit is getting really low RIR in the middle of your mesocycle, taper down on how fast you're adding loader reps. If the shit is way too easy, like I have a situation where you like, especially with neural learning, after two or three sessions of a new exercise, you know, you're progressing by five pounds each time, but your nervous system learns so quickly and your technique improves. What you hit, like, let's say on an incline bench, you hit, uh, you know, 60 kilos for a set of 15 and you hit like 57.5 kilos last week for a set of 14, and that was two RIR. This time, 15, 60 kilos because of the neural learning effect, that's like four RIR. Like next week, you're not going to do 62.5 for 15. You're going to do 65 for like 16, and that really will be two or one RIR like it was planned. So sometimes you have to accelerate the yeah. pace because otherwise you're just doing junk volume. Have you ever gotten that thing, Steve, where you're like increasing conservatively? Like, I'm not even training anymore. This is a joke. It's all a warm-up. Yeah, I had a... Uh... 
our gym got a hack squat like I don't know like a year or so ago or something and we I hadn't really had access to one before then and so I was like in there and I was just like man this was hard last week and I've like got 10 kilos more and this is like easy so then it was just like yeah, yeah just make it you don't want it to get easier each kilos. week. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, then you're doing something wrong. So you want shit to get harder each week, but the objective goals are the most important. And then you adjust the magnitude of how you know, two and a half pounds on the bar or or five pounds on the bar, or 10 pounds on the bar, something like that, based on how are your RIRs, because your RIRs should line up, you know, less and less and less. And you want to keep it on track like that, session to session to session. A lot of times, there's all kinds of insight you get from the last session that you did. You're like, oh, yeah, that was pretty tough. Better not add much. Also, warm ups, right? Like you do your warm ups and you're like, ooh, this shit is feeling heavy. I was going to increase 10 pounds from last time. Let's just do five. You do five and then it's way too easy. On the next set, you do 10. And then you're like, ah, it 10 it was. It was just weirdness and warming up. So you can always make these adjustments. Just make sure it's pivotal that you make these objective mini PRs, microcycle to microcycle to microcycle to microcycle. When you can't make them anymore at any RIR, that's when you have to start cutting it off. Because if you're not using these objective markers, you're just using a lot of perception. And that could... I don't want to say bite you in the ass is a bit of an exaggeration, but that could be a little bit of a problem because you could just be in the state where you're kind of eluding yourself in, in a variety of ways. You could be pushing it too hard and think, yeah, it was too IR, it wasn't, it was zero. Or you could be pushing it to four IR and be like, oh, that's enough. Like with deadlifts and high rep squats, like fuck two IR, man. Like, I don't know what's two IR, but I do know last week I squatted 300 pounds for a set of 10. This week I'm going to do 305 for a set of 10. Whatever IR that ends up feeling like, then I can adjust afterwards. But I'm not going to be like, yeah, I'll just work up to whatever's, you know, people see this in their program. They're like, I work up to a two RIR. I'm like, what the fuck is that? How do you know what number that is? Is that 275? Is that 315? Is that 305? Well, you have to look back at last week anyway to at least get the ballpark. Might as well just be making these little PRs and then adjust those later to reflect the RIR. Yeah, I love the kind of rep match or like slight and load increase or increase by rep I, I literally week one and this is complete credit to you mike and the kind of the system and having kind of spoken to you for a long time and been Stop. using it a long time but now like it, it becomes very intuitive just week one i know i take a lift to the point of which i'm like that rep really did slow down maybe yep. it didn't slow down much on like a squat for example because i know if i push it to a point where it's really slowing down like i'm almost like that's why right <laughs> so yeah i've done yeah. that mistake as well so for the like, big compound lifts it, it just slows down on like isolation stuff it like really is like mm, i had to really try for that rep and then like the rest of the mesocycle essentially solves itself i just mm -hmm. auto-regulate sets and just look to like you exactly said bit of load extra rep maybe i match performance one week because i'm like i overdid it last week so i can mm -hmm. keep going with the rest of the stuff so mm -hmm. yeah when you have that idea and you know you're in that kind of the zone of overload like uh brian minor talks about like there's no stress either uh, i don't know yes, how people you're in the zone anyway <laughs> train like at the it once doing this i just I, I i struggle with the idea of staying at a certain rer or even training to failure every single session because it's kind of like i don't know where i'd go like having this nice foundation of the kind of making sure you start hard with sufficient and you're just getting like a good stimulus it just opens up a nice like you talk about it like you're at mav for as long as possible and that means you're growing for as long as possible like that that to me is like a bit of a game changer 100%. And it makes it so, like you said, it makes it so intuitive and so simple. You're just like, I just come in and I just do a little bit better each time. And when I can't do that anymore, then my mesocycle is over. And if I feel like I'm not going to be able to do that anymore very soon, I ease up as to how quickly I'm adding so that I can survive for as many weeks as I've planned. Which, you know, a lot of times people say, like, oh, you shouldn't be planning, you should be purely auto-regulating. What about when you have like a contest coming up? 
and you, you got to deload four weeks out and not deload two weeks out. That's an awkward time to deload. You're going to say, okay, I need to survive another two weeks. What am I going to do as far as loads and reps to survive another two weeks? Well, I don't want to get too ballsy. I want to play it a little bit conservative. And look, worst comes to worst, if that last week, if the if fourth week is your last week of accumulation and the third week was way too easy, you can fire yourself in the fourth week. You can always make it up later. But if you go a little too hard to begin with, that's a much harder problem to solve. Yeah, perfect. Mike, that was a really, really good chat as always. Uh, we'll have to get you on for another one soon because we had so many questions come in and I've got loads more and I inevitably always have a question and want to catch up. So uh, these are always great and people really appreciate them. So thank you again for coming on. Steve, it's always my pleasure. Big ups to your audience. Is that something you say in the UK? Big, Big ups. ups. <laughs> I don't at least. <laughs> Maybe someone does. <laughs> of course you do, Steve. I know you've been in South London gangs before. <laughs> Big ups in it. So uh, it's always a pleasure being out here, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. And as far as new shit uh, and whatever, uh, you know, uh, the muscle hypertrophy guides for each specific muscle have been completed. They've been updated. So the uh, just to go to my Instagram, there's a link, right? There's the only link in my bio. It goes to like Dr. Mike Central webpage. And one of them is the hypertrophy guide central hub. You click on that and it is every single muscle group now with uh, tons of specifics, all updated hamstrings, quads, everything. So if you guys are looking for some in-depth information and ideas about how to approach specific muscle group training, uh, each article is free and it's like, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages or some shit like that. So check that out. That's, that's new. And also, I've just remembered, has your, your ebook has now become hardback? Oh, not hardback, yeah. paper. Uh, you can Paperback. get a hard copy. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. I've been told it's like $55, which is fucking absurd. Uh, unfortunately, like when the ebook is 37 or whatever, the paperback has to cost more because it's just physically made of stuff and we have to pay for that. Uh, and also, like when you sell shit on Amazon, you don't get a whole lot of money off that anyway. They take almost everything, which is fine. We, we should, yeah, we should be so lucky to be on Amazon. But uh, uh, yeah, so if you, so awesome. some folks, folks, I'll, I'll just cut you the deal right here. If you want a hard version of the physical version of the book, buy the ebook, take it to a printing shop, and for like two dollars, you can get it printed or whatever, and the, they'll hard bind it for you and everything. But if you really just don't want to mess with that stuff, yes, Amazon now has a paperback version of the book and it's like 375 pages or some shit. I mean, there's a package weight. It's like two pounds. It's like, holy fuck, that's a nice. big ass book. You could hit someone with that. Book. <laughs> so maybe buy the book, take it to the gym, see people who aren't training properly and just start beating them with the book. They'll learn something. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mike. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can log your journey. It's also going to be 
courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.